0: Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at Avatar, The Way of Water, and we're also going to be looking at the first Avatar, the 2009 film. The reason we're going to look at both movies is because there's an interesting thing that happens with sequels. When we're building sequels, our movies actually become more like TV shows than like traditional feature films. So traditionally, when we think of a feature film, we think of a contained unit. But when we think of a series, what we actually want to do is we want to create a replicable element where every installment of the series feels like every other installment of the series, even as the plot and certain elements change. So in other words, we're trying to create the same feeling in a different way. And this is true, whether you're making Avatar, whether you're making Avengers, whether you're making the Godfather one and two, we'll leave three for another conversation, right? Um, when we create sequels, we're not really just continuing the story. What we're really doing is we're building an engine. We're saying, what are the replicable elements of the first movie? And how do I replicate them in a way that feels the same, but also feels different? So the moviegoers can feel like they got what they came for, while also feeling like they got something a little unexpected. So we're gonna be looking at the engine of these two movies. And and this is not me being brilliant. James Cameron's been very forthcoming about this. In fact, he had trouble with the writing of Avatar because he was frustrated with the writers trying to come up with new stories rather than first looking at what made the first one so successful. And he's trying to replicate those elements. So we're gonna be talking a little bit about how sequels work and how to write a successful sequel. We're also gonna be talking about the role of spectacle In Avatar, in both films, we're going to be talking about the importance of spectacle and we're going to be relating that to your writing, whether you're writing a huge feature film like Avatar that's going to cost $400 million to make, or whether you're writing the $20,000 feature. We're going to talk about the value of spectacle and the importance of spectacle and how to build spectacle in your screenwriting your tv writing even your playwriting how to build spectacle the third thing we're going to be talking about are some of the structural differences between the first and the second avatar now both films both screenplays have their weaknesses and they have their strengths but the but structurally the script for the first avatar is actually despite its kind of cheesy dialogue and all that kind of stuff that everyone complains about structurally The first Avatar is actually a much stronger film than Avatar The Way of Water. And so we're going to be talking about some of the structural differences so you can understand how to apply those lessons to your own screenwriting. We talked about the idea that a sequel is supposed to create the same feeling as the original. So we should really start off by talking about what's the feeling that Avatar is supposed to give you. And there are a couple of different elements to that feeling, right? On the simplest level, Avatar is supposed to give you a feeling of wonder. It's supposed to give you a feeling of action, excitement, but it's supposed to transport you, right? It's not just a movie about a bunch of action sequences, even though it's kind of built like a video game. It's a movie that's built like a video game that's intended to take you on some kind of spiritual journey and give you some kind of spiritual feeling. So that's the first element, right? This kind of enhanced transcendent feeling of wonder that is baked into both the first Avatar and the sequel. The second element is that there's something political about Avatar. Now, the truth is the first avatar is way more political than the second. There's the obvious themes of environmentalism that roll through both of these films. There's the obvious parallels to the colonial experience of America and the colonial experience of Pandora. If we look at the first movie, there's also a very strong, like we're going to, without ever telling you we're doing it, make you look at the second Iraq war from the perspective of the Iraqis, um, where you're sending in a guy who thinks he's a hero into a world where he's going to discover that he's actually not. Um, And we're going to go in and see what the experience of shock and awe and a war for resources that's set up under false pretenses. We're going to look and we're going to see what does that actually look like when you are the person living there, right? So the first avatar has this very strong political angle to it. That's another part of the feeling of the piece. Uh, The second avatar has politics to it too. It certainly has the same environmental politics and the colonial politics, um, but it's slightly less complex in the way it's built for reasons that we are going to talk about later. But So that's the second element, right? There's a political aspect to it. And then of course, there is the action adventure element to it, right? You're going to get your adrenaline pumping during these movies and you're going to transcend and you're going to have some political thoughts, right? That is the kind of package of emotions that everything in Avatar is designed to deliver to you. And because the primary feeling of Avatar is one of wonder, spectacle becomes even more important in this film than it might be in some others. Spectacle becomes urgent in the making of Avatar. Because without spectacle and Avatar, Avatar is not Avatar. Avatar Way of Water is not Avatar Way of Water. You can see right in the title, there is the spectacle. So in the first Avatar, what's the spectacle? The spectacle is these incredible 12-foot tall blue creatures, right? That are impossibly thin with impossibly big eyes, right? And kind of look like James Cameron's ex-wife. That is... That is the spectacle. This world of Pandora that's going to completely envelope you. People riding crazy creatures, right? Um, Feeling like you're immersed in this world that is uh, aglow with special spirituality that you wish that you could experience, right? That's part of the spectacle. And Avatar Way of Water goes, okay, we're going to do exactly the same shit, we're going to do it under the water and just like avatar the original was going to actually revolutionize the 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 nature of special effects and the nature of cgi and, and the nature of motion capture right just like the original avatar was going to go we're going to film this in a way that makes this movie look different from any movie you've ever seen before and avatar way of water goes hey now we're going to do it with water This is going to be the first movie with CGI water that looks real. We're going to do it with free divers. We're going to do wet for wet and then work CGI into that, right? What James Cameron's doing here is freaking wild on the visual scale. But he's not just doing it to be fancy. He's doing it because that feeling of wonder... That feeling that you're watching the best National Geographic video you've ever seen in your life, except that it's taking place in a world that you've never experienced before is fundamental to what he's trying to build and the feeling of wonder that he's trying to deliver to the audience. Now, obviously, a movie like Avatar, where they have pretty much an unlimited budget, um, seems obvious that you'd build spectacle. But I'd like to argue that if you're an independent filmmaker, spectacle is even more important than if you're making something small. And the reason is very, very simple. Most independent films don't have it. And the reason most independent films don't have it is that independent filmmakers are thinking, how can I tell the most beautiful story as inexpensively as possible? But they're rarely thinking about, how am I going to get audiences to show up for this story? They're not thinking about their trailer. And you got to remember that if butts don't get in those seats, if people don't see your movie, it doesn't matter how beautifully written it is. It doesn't matter how gorgeous your dialogue is. Um... (laughs) The original Avatar has one of my favorite examples of truly terrible dialogue. I'm going to paraphrase, uh, but there is basically an expository monologue when Jake Sully first arrives at uh, the planet uh, Pandora. It goes a little bit like this. As you may know, Jake, you are here to obtain an As you also may know, Jake, since you were an astronaut who's been training for this forever, uh, unobtainium is very, very, very hard to obtain. Um, as you may, may know, Jake, uh, in order to obtain the unobtainium, we are going to put you in this crazy blue creature that's going to look freaking awesome um, and uh, send you out into this tribe to infiltrate and... As you may know, Jake, if you do this successfully and you get us the unobtainium, we will give you your legs back because Jake is paralyzed and unable to walk, but, and the avatar, he can walk, right? So this is potentially the worst monologue ever written from a dialogue point of view, but it doesn't really matter, right? The film transcends the weak dialogue because we're really connected to this visual spectacle. In fact, what's Jake really going to do the moment they stick him in the avatar, he's going to get up and start running. Right. And we're going to have this amazing, beautiful action sequence. Everything's going to look so gorgeous and we're going to feel like we're dropped into this amazing world. And we don't really freaking care that the writer has barely learned how to do exposition despite being actually better than this. Cause he's done a lot better job in films like the Terminator. Right. Um, or even a film like Titanic, right? He's actually better than this. It doesn't matter that he's being a little lazy there because the spectacle lifts us. Um, On the other hand, dialogue can do the same thing. A beautifully written scene can lift something that doesn't look beautiful, but it's really hard to capture a beautifully written scene in a trailer where you're only seeing little clips of it, right? What trailers for independent films often look like are a bunch of talking heads. Um, and it's really hard to get excited about a bunch of talking heads. Um, so if you're making an independent film, I want you to think about the spectacle. And spectacle doesn't have to look the same in every kind of movie, right? If you're writing a horror movie, the spectacle might be the the blood and guts of it. Um, if you are writing... Uh, mayor of Easttown, right? The spectacle is the way that you create the feeling of this little town in Pennsylvania, right? If, it if, if you're, uh, if you're writing a, a, a movie like saw, right? Everybody talks about saw, like as a great example of like a little contained horror film that was shot on no money and made so much money, but they forget to mention that it looked freaking beautiful. Or if you look at a movie like brick, which is literally set shot, I think on one sound stage, they don't even make a real show of hiding the fact that it's a sound stage. And it was obviously shot for no money, but the spectacle of it, they made it look freaking beautiful for no money. And what that does is it gives you a trailer. It gives you a teaser. It gives you something to show the audience. It also, by actually capturing the spectacle in your script, right, rather than just going like, eh, the director will figure out how to make this beautiful, by capturing the spectacle in your script, it costs you nothing to do that. It only costs you time. It only costs you the time of going, let me really visualize this. What does the room look like? What does this image look like? How do I make it cool or specific? Right? The spectacle can be a close-up of a face if you look closely enough and notice something cool. So if you notice a character crying, that's not spectacle. But if you notice a tear caught on the edge of a quivering eyelash, that is spectacle. Now that spectacle costs you no more to shoot than she cries, But you've created a visual that actually matters. It's going to stick with us. So spectacle can just, you can replace the word spectacle if it's scary for you. If it sounds expensive, replace the word spectacle with specificity. You want to ask yourself, how am I going to look at this specifically enough that every element could have something visually cool, visually interesting to it. Because often it costs the same amount to shoot something visually interesting as to shoot something totally freaking boring. So many independent filmmakers are like, okay, let me just shoot against the white wall, right? Cause I have it here in my apartment as opposed to going like, okay, let me make a list of every cool place I have access to that actually looks co- good that I can shoot in for free or for cheap. Let me think about how do I use bodies in that space? Let me think about. What are the people doing? What's the fun action that they're doing that I can root them in, right? Everything can become spectacle, but you want to remember that your piece should be visually beautiful and that your spectacle, the kind of spectacle you want to create is connected to the feeling of the movie. So if you're writing a thriller, you're writing Chinatown, or you're writing a modern day Chinatown, the spectacle is different than the spectacle of Avatar, right? The spectacle is the knife up Jack Nicholson's nose, right? The spectacle is Jack Nicholson caught in the flowing water, pulling himself over the fence, right? These things don't have to be hugely expensive, but you want to make sure that you are capturing something visually beautiful that connects to the feeling of the piece. If you're writing a horror movie, it might be about the blood and guts, right? It might be about the costumes or makeup. You want to think about where are you spending your money? If you're writing an action movie, the spectacle is in the action sequences. And if you're in the fast and the furious, the the spectacle is what you're doing with cars. So it doesn't matter if you're writing big or small. Movies are visual. You want to capture visually in your script so people can see it in their mind's eye and go, oh my God, this is going to be cool. It's not just a bunch of people talking interesting stuff. It's going to be cool. And I see it in my head and I see the trailer and it feels real. This is what your actual job is as a screenwriter. Your job is spectacle. That spectacle just might be different. You can think of a little movie like The Celebration. Celebration is a tiny little movie that's basically shot at a dinner party. But it looks beautiful. You want to think, how am I going to make my films look beautiful? Uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. He chose to shoot it in a what used to be the old TV format, right? In a unique format, and the reason that he did that, and obviously there are issues with the whale, and there are beautiful things about the whale, but the reason that he chose to do that was to actually make this man's body the spectacle. He wanted the the room to feel too full of him. Now, the, you can have whatever political beliefs you want to have about whether that is uh, is respectful are an empathetic or whether that's exploitative, right? That's, that's a completely different question, but the spectacle of it, right, is unavoidable. The way he's thinking on that little tiny film, how do I want this to look? So I want to make sure that you actually think about that. So we, are, we understand spectacle now, and we know that this is really why we're going to Avatar, and we know from the title that it's really about the stuff in the water. It's really about Jake Sully's son's relationship with the Tulkun, the the whale-like creature that's an outcast like him that he's gonna connect with. We know it's about That. And that means that we can have these long, beautiful underwater sequences. It's about kids playing with aquatic animals, right? Avatar is about kids playing with fish, but it's about kids playing with fish in a beautiful, transcendent way that fills you with wonder, right? That's the primary thing we're delivering. And in that three and a half hours of film, a lot of that film is literally just National Geographic footage right in a fictional world, because the movie is about the wonder of the aquatic world, just like the original is about the wonder of the forest world of Pandora. So it's really important to understand what you're building within that. You can see how James Cameron is literally mirroring the same elements that gave him success in the previous film. Well, let's see in film number one, we have a home tree in a actually brilliant structural move in film. Number one, we set up this home tree as like the most important thing in the world. And then we, we know, we know that these imperialist people from the sky, right? That they are going to destroy it. And we think that's going to happen at the end, or there's going to be an epic battle and maybe we'll save it. And James Cameron does a really interesting thing in the first avatar. He kills that home tree halfway through. Oh my God, if home tree has been lost, what is left? What is left? What else can there be? And then James Cameron establishes a second home tree that they could defend in the second half of the movie. But this is a really brilliant move structurally, right? Get to the big thing first, get to the thing that the audience knows is going to happen at the end in the middle. Because what that does is structurally, it goes, whoa, I don't know where I am now. So we know home tree is always central and that home tree is a spiritual thing. It's not just a thing that's worshipped. It's a thing that gives you a spiritual experience. So what happens in way of water? We got a home tree. Where does it live? Under the water. Why? Because this is the way of water. Our wonder is going to come from a different place. It's literally the same element transported. Although structurally, you can already see that what's done with Home Tree is much less interesting, much less dangerous, much less problematic than what's done in the first movie, okay? Other elements. Well, in, in the first Avatar, we have an element called unobtainium. If you're groaning right now, I'm groaning too. Um, but this is almost, you can think of it almost like a joke, right? Um, uh, Hitchcock used to call it the MacGuffin, the thing that everybody wants. And he called it the MacGuffin because it doesn't matter what it is. So in this case, in the first movie, it's unobtanium. In the second movie, it's the exact same thing, except instead of being called unobtainium, it's called something else, <laughs> right? And instead of being located at Home Tree, it's located, little bit of a spoiler here, it's located inside of the Tulkun the giant whale-like creature with whom the boy has bonded, right? So it used to be that the men from the sky, the imperialists, the Americans, right? It used to be that they were on Pandora hunting on optanium. Now they're on Pandora hunting Tolkien. It used to be that they needed to take down Home Tree because that's where you can get on optanium. Now they got to kill the Tolkien. Because that's where you're found on optanium And that means that the Tulkun must be a creature that the, the characters in this piece that we care about have a tremendous connection for, right? They have to have the same value as Home Tree. They have to be that important. So what are we going to do? We're going to take the young kid and we are going to give him an emotional connection to these to these creatures, not just the literal connection of like, well, these are very important for our tribe, right? No, we're going to have spectacle around it. We're going to see the arrival of the tulkun and what it means. We're going to see the relationship between a boy and his whale-like creature, right? These two outcasts who find each other. We're going to invest the tulkun with all the emotional value that the first movie invested Home Tree with. And then we're going to kill the Tolkien right and again there are some spoilers here we're not going to do it in as interesting a way as we did in the first movie the first movie you go there's no way they're gonna kill home tree In the second movie you're waiting for them to kill the Tulkun that the boy loves but that token is not going to be killed and a really obvious message. Here's the political element, right? We got to have a political element. Here's the political element. Um, the political element is that the tulkun, these this school of brilliant whales who were told are way more intelligent than we are. Uh, the tulkun have agreed to never fight again. This incredibly powerful pack of sea creatures have made an agreement with each other. They're never going to kill again. And in fact, our Tolkien, the little boys Tolkun, the Tolkun that we love has been outcast because he made the terrible mistake of fighting back. And this is going to connect to the main character's journey. Jake Sully, by the end of the film is going to realize you can't just be a pacifist. You got to fight back. Now, um. Thematically, this is a much less interesting political message than the first film, right? Uh, the first film takes a character who believes that he's the good guy, right? He's just like us, right? He's an American hero. Yes, he has a selfish goal. he wants his legs back. Who wouldn't? But he believes he's on the side of his the good guys. he's fighting for his country, right? And it's only in the process of going into the wilderness that he goes native a la dances with wolves, right? That he goes on this journey, this experience that he didn't expect. And he comes to realize, oh my God, I'm not the good guy. I'm the bad guy. I'm working for the even worse guys. They're just here to take the most precious thing from these people. Oh, and by the way, I'm in love with this girl that I have been secretly betraying from the beginning in ways that I didn't even know. And now I have to stand up to the people that I used to consider my friends, my mentors, that I used to believe, and I have to stand up to them to protect this tribe that may not even accept me, that may never forgive me for what I've done because I've already halfway through the movie cost them the most important thing in their world. That's the political structure of the first movie connected to the character's journey. The second movie is an anti-pacifist movie. Um, and I think you should write your movies about whatever politically you believe. I'm not sure that our nation desperately needs an anti-pacifist movie right now. I'm not sure that pacifism is our big problem. Um, but you also want to make sure that, that you're, that you're waiting your political arguments, right? So basically what we have is the dumbest bunch of brilliant fish ever, right? These gigantic fish who could easily kill the people hunting them who are just going, well, you know, what can you do? You know, sometimes they kill one of you, but we're just never, ever going to fight back, even though that's so stupid. And there's one guy who tried to fight back. We're going to ostracize him. What a terrible dude, right? What they're doing is so idiotic, right? That it, it stops us from really getting invested in the complexity of these political ideas. Weight given to the beauty of pacifism. There is no weight given to, you know, there's no John Lennon singing, imagine, here. There's only a bunch of idiots going, well, I guess we'll just swim around and maybe we'll be fine. So you want to weight, you want to weight your argument so that you can have a complicated political idea. So here's here's where the two movies are going to start to diverge from one another is the first movie is saying something actually politically complicated. That's rooted in a real world problem, right? And a really complicated relationship that we actually have that we can experience, which is we are all Americans and we love our country, right? And we also realize our country is doing a lot of terrible shit, right? And how do you, how do you love your country and honor what you actually believe in, and what are the things you're unaware of where this just feels normal until you start to see that, no, there's actually another way of living. And how do you honor your love for your country and your people, even as you start to realize that there are other people with ways of living that are maybe more beautiful than yours, right? This is a complicated thing that connects to a real world problem and that's weighted in a way that's very complicated for the main character, at least for a giant action movie. Versus here's a really stupid idea that we're going to play out through the whole film and guess what? We knew it was wrong the moment we saw it and we're waiting the whole film for our Tolkien to finally fight back and it finally does. And of course it works. And so what happens is we don't just lose the complexity of the political angle. We also lose the complexity of the stakes, right? what's incredible about the first avatar for all of its dialogue weaknesses you don't know what's going to happen you feel like anything could happen and anyone could die cuz even home tree could die in the second avatar you can predict what's going to happen and there has been a lot written about you know well it's cuz he's following predictable plots but the first the first avatar is a predictable plot too that's not actually the problem the first avatar is, is a remake of Ferngully, but it's structured in a powerful way, whereas the second avatar is not weighted enough, right? The oppositional point of view is not weighted enough for us to really have any real complexity or real sense of stakes, okay? And so what ends up happening is we are dependent on the tremendous power of the spectacle to carry us through the movie, like a fireworks display because we don't have the structure underneath. And that's why the three and a half hours feels long. It's not because it's long hourly. It's because we are being pulled by spectacle without the power of structure underneath. Okay. Um, the next element, um, theme. So, there's a very interesting, you, you, we've talked about how it's the same, and we've talked about some of the elements that make it the same. Um, but you also want every installment to feel different in some way. And, and so if we look at, um, the original, uh, avatar, the original avatar is about right. A man of tremendous bravery, right? The kind of guy who will throw himself off a cliff right, who will ride a flying dragon, right? This is the kind of guy we're talking about. And we're talking about a woman who's just like him, right, who's a a part of, of this tribe. We're talking about people who risk their lives for the things they believe in. And James Cameron has a very interesting idea. Time has passed. And just like us, right, they're not the kids anymore. They're now the parents, right? And they have a new responsibility, Right, they want to protect their children, and this is the part that's actually connected. This is a really powerful idea, right? What if we're, we're really trying to do is wh- how do you stay a hero when when you have children you love? How do you stay brave when you also want to protect when you when people are dependent on you? Right? There's a there's a really interesting twist there, and it's an interesting question to ask, and. Uh, and the kids are a lot more like them, right? The kids are taking big risks and big dangers, right? And, and, and that's interesting, right? Because when they were kids, that's what they were like, but now they don't want their kids to be like that. They want their kids to be safe. So there's something interesting about that and there's something connected to it. Um, but structurally it doesn't totally work. And this is the last piece that I want to talk about today is how, again, the power of the spectacle compensates enough that people can go see Avatar and have a great experience. But if you watch the two movies next to each other, they have the same crappy dialogue. But you watch the two movies next to each other and you will realize that the first has this powerful narrative drive that is propelling us through the movie in a way that feels like a breakneck pace. Even as we get the beauty and the spirituality and all that gorgeous spectacle. Whereas the second movie feels much slower. It feels more like a National Geographic video where we're kind of just sitting and watching the effects wash over us and going, wow, how do they do that until we get to the final hour of nonstop incredible action, right? There's a feeling of slowness to it. But the feeling of slowness is absolutely nothing to do with the fact that we've seen the plot before because we saw both plots before. The feeling of slowness is actually connected to the simplest problem structure and the most common one, which is the main character's want and the threat in the film. So let's start with the main character's want. Let's just start with Jake Sully. The truth is there are multiple main characters in this piece, which is part of what makes it really hard. It starts off and it really feels like it's gonna be Jake Sully's movie. Um, but then you start to realize, no, it's actually the kid's movie, right? But then you also start to realize it's not just the kid's movie. It's also uh, Quaritch's movie, right? The Stephen Lang character, right? You, the bad guy. It's also his movie. He's He's got a tremendous amount of screen time happening, not even related to the main character. And his relationship with Spider, it's also Spider's movie, right? And you start to realize, whoa, no wonder it's so long, right? We got all these different characters, Uh, But there's nothing wrong with having multiple main characters. There's nothing wrong with having multiple points of view in a movie. But you really have to power those wants. And that's where this movie is actually really struggling. So in the first movie, you have a guy. And what does he want? He wants his legs back. And in order to get his legs back, he has to do this nearly impossible thing. Which is he has to take on a blue body... And somehow infiltrate a tribe he knows nothing about. He has to fall in, he's going to end up falling in love. So we're going to have a threat, right? The threat is he's falling in love with the enemy. We have the threat of he's realizing he's wrong. And we have the threat of he's either going to get killed by his own people or killed by the tribe. And somehow he's going to navigate all that, figure out his loyalties and what he believes. And even as his people are destroying the world because of him, Right. He's got this incredibly challenging want. So he has this want. He wants his legs back. And by the end of the movie, he is going to make the choice to sacrifice his legs, even though, of course, we're going to get a happy ending. and He's going to end up in the Avatar body, right? But he's going to sacrifice his legs. He's going to sacrifice his people. He's going to sacrifice everything he wants for love. So we have a character who goes on a journey in relation to his desire for his legs, who tries to do something nearly impossible to get his legs back, and then who ultimately lets go of the desire for his legs in order to serve a greater love and a greater belief. That is a spiritual journey that's baked into the structure of the piece. In the second avatar, right, in Avatar the Way of Water, we have the same character, but now his want is to not get caught up in the trouble. So what happens is this character, he starts with a clear want. There's nothing wrong with this want. I want to leave my tribe. Even though I'm the leader and they need me and I love them, I'm going to bring death to them because I got a crazy man trying to kill me, which we'll talk about later. So I'm going to leave my tribe and I'm going to go live among the water people. And this is a hard goal, right? This goal could be the whole movie. The whole movie could be his journey to live among the water people. But actually what happens is by the end of act two in a seven act structure, around 45 minutes into the movie, he's living with the water people. It's not, it's happened. He basically leaves, shows up, they go shore. And now he's living with them. So his want is now completed, And it's completed without a lot of obstacles, without a lot of change, without a lot of hard choices. The only really hard choice he's had to make, uh, and this is a little problem I have with the movie, you probably will notice that all of the adult women are kind of hysterical and need to be kind of calmed down by their much more rational husbands, which drove me a little crazy. But his obstacle is his wife doesn't agree, she doesn't want to leave, so he has to overcome that. And then he's just got to go and it's sad, but he leaves and there's no real obstacle. So he doesn't have to make any choices or any real changes. Once he's made the decision to go, he goes, he's accepted. And then what he wants to do is basically lay low and not get involved for the next two hours of the movie. And so what happens is there's nothing to be built around him. Yeah, there's a little relationship with his children, right? He wants his kids to stay out of trouble. So there's like some like normal parenting stuff happening, but there's not a really strong want driving him. He's our main character, but he's actually just being reactive. He's reacting to the kids. He's reacting to the chief, right? He's reacting to the new dangers that happen. He's reacting to the threat, but he's not actually pursuing anything because his want is already completed at the moment he arrives. And that's why we actually really start to break away from Jake Sully. We're breaking away from Jake Sully because there's something to do with him because he doesn't have a want. And so we lose that narrative drive. We end up with actually a passive main character in an action movie. I'm not saying he's not doing stuff. I'm saying he's reacting rather than choosing. And that undermines his journey and our feeling of propulsion. Okay, no problem. Well, we have a kids, right? They have wants. Well, we got the boys, right? And one of the boys, no matter what he does, is not good enough for dad. And the other boy, uh, he's the kind of the perfect one, right? Uh, the warrior that he's supposed to be. But he always wants to take these big risks that his dad doesn't like. Um, so they have wants, particularly at the beginning before they get to the world. But then mostly what happens once they get to the new world, yeah, there's some bullying. Yeah, there's some beautiful stuff with Tulkun and stuff like that. But really what's happening... Is the kids are playing for about an hour and a half. And there's nothing wrong with the kids playing, the spectacle elevates it, but the kids don't have really clear, powerful wants that are driving them. And so again, we kind of have this feeling like we're watching and it it feels beautiful, but it feels slow. It feels slow because We are in the emotional relationship. Dad doesn't accept me. The kids don't accept me. I feel alone. The little, uh, the teenage girl who's feeling actually connected and she's able to do things in the water, right? The, the youngest one who's kind of going on her own journey, right? We, we have all that and it's all great, but none of them go, I want this. And this is so hard to get, and I'm going to do it no matter what. And I'm going to make choices I've never made before. And all that affects the narrative flow that affects the structure. It gives a feeling of flatness to the piece. In fact, who's the character who actually has a strong want? The character who has a strong want is Stephen Lang's character, Quaritch. The guy from the first movie, the bad guy who's back in this movie. Now he's got a really clear want and you might notice that he ends up hijacking the movie. That it actually becomes his film much more than Jack's film or even the film, the, a film about the kids. It actually becomes his film because he's got the strongest want. What does he want? He wants more than anything to kill Jake Sully. That's what he wants. He wants it desperately He is Ahab chasing the whale, right? Um, That's the only thing he wants in the world he has. We won't tell exactly why, but he has come back from the dead to do this thing. This one thing. Kill Jake Sully. And he's going to spend the whole movie trying to do this. And he has an obstacle. His obstacle is he has a son, Spider, who has grown up with Jake Sully. And he's developing a relationship with his son. And he doesn't want to admit that he loves his son, but he does. So he has an obstacle, which is navigating that relationship with the son. And this is not the best want for this character. And let me tell you why. There's nothing wrong with wanting to kill somebody. Um, But this particular character is functioning like, a quote, antagonist, meaning he's purely a bad guy, right? There's actually no world to this character outside of his desire to kill Jake Sully until the relationship with Spider really starts to kick off towards the end. He doesn't really have, there's nothing else in his life. He exists only to torment Jake Sully. Now, if we compare this with the same character in the first avatar, character in the first avatar, his how, how he is, happens to be that he is ruthless, that he is bold, that he is completely insensitive That he is racist, right? That he believes that his way is the only way that matters, right? That he is violent, that he is cruel, that he has no limits, right? Those are all his hows. But his want, he's in charge of security. He's serving his people and they want to get this unobtainium and his job is to make sure they freaking get it. And he gets betrayed by the guy he's dependent on, Jake. And that sends him off the rails, right? And that makes sense, right? And we have pressure in that character and that's complicated and that's a human relationship, but he's not existing to torment Jake. Jake's a tool for him until Jake betrays him and that hurts him and it offends his values and it makes him want revenge. But really he's there to serve his job job that makes sense and that makes sense in a political nature. Now, does that mean that some people don't get obsessed? Sure. Okay. That's fine. So let's pretend, let's pretend, let's go with it. He's obsessed. He's gone through all this and all he wants to do is get to Jake. The problem is he doesn't really have any obstacles either. Not until the final showdown. In fact, everything he does works. They catch spider. Spider, for reasons that are a little hard to understand. I guess he's been tortured a little bit, but he gets pretty enthusiastic about helping him. Um, he uh gets dared by Spider to ride one of these flying creatures. And he does it, it works. Um he uses some brutal strategies to track down Jake. It works. He uses some trickery to flush Jake out. It works. Every single thing he does works. So he doesn't really have to change, not to the very end of the movie. And this is what makes the movie feel slow. The characters are not really changing until that final fight sequence when they start to have to make choices because the obstacles start to grow. So if you want your structure to work, you got to remember your characters need to want something, but what they want needs to be hard. Now, the truth is they have every reason to make it hard and they could make it hard in a way that actually mirrored the first movie that would actually make this movie feel more complicated and also more like the first movie, which is in the first movie where we have a guy who thinks he's the good guy, right? Who ends up at war with his own people and having to make choices between what he wants and the people he serves. That element could actually be replicated with Quaritch if we just sat in the reality of the world. So here's the reality of the world. These people, the sky people, the people he works for, right? The people run by the general played by Edie Falco, right? Those people, they don't give a crap about Jake Sully. Jake Sully is living mostly peacefully among a tribe. Yeah, he's causing some trouble for them. I'm sure they'd like him dead, but he's not the important thing to them. The important thing to them is getting the new unobtanium, the stuff out of the Tulkun. That's why they're there. And chasing down Jake Sully in this way and pissing off the tribes that love the tulkun that doesn't support them at all. That's actually the worst thing they can do. It's a total waste of time and resources. So from a just reality perspective, they have brought Stephen Lang's character back for no reason that serves them. They don't need him at all. They're successfully uh, extracting this stuff. That's worth billions. They don't need him. He's a fly in the ointment because of his desire for revenge. And if you simply allowed them to actually have something they needed him for, Then the pressure in the first movie is love, and this this movie it's hatred, but it's the same thing. The pressure to kill Jake puts, puts him up against the forces of the sky people, his people, and replicates the element that made the first avatar work, which is the pressure between your people and this and what you really believe in. It's a twisted version of that, but you can see that that's actually closer to the engine of the original Avatar. The other thing that would do is it would make the movie move because he would have to make big choices and changes, and that would allow the relationship between him and Spider to actually evolve in a believable and powerful way rather than just getting kind of fudged in at the end. So what we're really talking about here is, is, if this was a draft of a script that we were working on, right? We're not changing everything. What we're really doing is going, okay, we got to figure out what Jake Sully wants. We know what he doesn't want, but what does he want? We got to get him moving towards something that matters to him so that that can be tested. We got to figure out if we're going to break away to each of these kids, we got to figure out what each of these kids really want. We got to figure out what Spider really wants. It's making him choose to help. We, We have to understand what does the general want that she brought this guy back from the dead for? that's really hard to get. What's he supposed to be doing? And we need to feel the pull of his desire to kill Jake, pulling him away from his mission so he can make those hard choices. In other words, we have to look at what's already there, what does the character want, and what makes it hard. And if you do that in Avatar, you elevate the whole movie. Because rather than feeling slow, and rather than taking three and a half hours to bounce from set piece to set piece to set piece, you'll actually find yourself propelling through those set pieces faster because the characters are carrying you rather than you having to push them into situations because their wants and desires are going to create these action sequences, are going to create the spectacle rather than you having to force it upon them. So you don't have an action franchise that everyone's already in love with. You don't have a five-picture deal with Fox to make five sequels to this movie, right? You've got a new movie that you've got to get out there into the world. And there are some simple things that you need to do. You need to make sure your character wants something and wants it really bad. And it's clear what they want. And it's not what they don't want. It's what they do. You got to make sure that's really hard to get. You need to make sure that you're honoring the reality of the world and the complexity of the moral choices your character is making so that the structure of their journey can feel complicated and real rather than predictable. You've got to make sure they go on a journey of change where they're having to make choices they haven't made before. You need to make sure that the threat is real and that the threat is materializing in the worst possible way, not just at the end, But throughout your movie, so the character and the audience both get knocked off course. But the incredible thing is, if you don't do that perfectly, there are ways the spectacle can help you. There's a moment at the end of Avatar that is going to make you cry, whether you like the movie or not. And it doesn't make you cry because the writer has built a real relationship with this character. It doesn't make you cry because the character has a real structural journey. It makes you cry because it is so freaking beautiful that it's almost impossible not to feel the emotion of it. And this is the thing that I want to leave you with. When we're talking about structure, we don't need to get everything perfect. We want to do the best job we can Nailing those fundamentals, but remember movies are a visual medium and sometimes when you can't get it perfect, you can use the power of spectacle either to elevate something that's already beautiful or to take something that should not work and load it with emotional charge. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. For a full transcript, check out my website. And remember, you can come join me every Thursday night for Thursday Night Writes, a free screenwriting class online. Check it out, writeyourscreenplay.com slash Thursday.